I hope this is a nice, enjoyable rumination, because this was a nice, enjoyable episode, although I do think it succeeds partially in spite of itself. Some of the episode's a little bit too obvious, and... I, I don't know. The final send-off between Kira and Gamora felt like it should have been more powerful, more impacting than it actually was. Which is funny, because there's an earlier scene between the two, which is awesome, and just... Oh, I'm not going to deny that one. Yeah, there was originally an idea in this episode where they were going to have Entek be a recurring character. Do you believe that? Now, I find that to be an interesting idea in its own right, but I don't mind that they didn't do it, other than the fact that they keep seeming to decide to against recurring characters in Deep Space Nine. It's really weird how that just keeps happening. And for the record, there will be further episodes which we'll be covering in the coming weeks where they will, again, decide to either discontinue or or not have recurring characters. Now, that being said, I'll tell you who I wanted as a recurring character. Gamor. For the record, he shows up in one other episode after this, and I don't think he's referenced, like, at all, which is a damn shame and a huge mistake, in my opinion. Deep Space Nine has tons upon tons of little scenes uh, flavor of life scenes every now and again. We're just, it's just a little bit on the side where they're just discussing their day or what's been going on with their family or their particular food preference or this particular holiday program or whatever. Little slices of life. They do that a lot. All over the place. Why not mention Gamar? Why not have Kira have it, getting an update about him? You know, just, just have him matter more to her character. Ah, anyways. <sighs> What I love most about this deception is that it's actually relatively easy, with only two exceptions. And that is pretty much the perfect magic trick in a nutshell right there, isn't it? Magic, that is to say, real-life magic, for those of you not aware, is all about misdirection. It's all about controlling what the audience sees and where they're looking so they don't see where they're not. The, there's, there's actually a fairly simplistic formula to, to real-life magic. It's do a whole bunch of stuff which is carefully calculated to distract, and then do one or two very difficult things, usually, although it varies, of course. But th that's the real trick. That's the skill in being a good magician, is those difficult things. You pull off those difficult things, those are the actual trick. You manage that, you've got them. And the best kind of magic trick is the one that's like 95% honest-to-goodness truth, and then the 5% is the lie, which leads to the trick right? In this case, the 5% is twofold. One is the memory that he recites for her, and the other is the corpse. Now, the corpse is relatively easy to procure. We know cloning is a thing in this setting, and, well, let's be completely blunt, I wouldn't put it past the Obsidian Order to clone Kira and then kill her once she's re reached full age and then just dress her up, which is actually really messed up when you think about it. But again, very Obsidian Order, and given the stakes they're playing for, I could see them going to that effort. The memory? That's much trickier. But at the same time, all they needed was a memory, which was a very private and personal thing for her. They could have gotten that through some kind of memory scan, of course, but what's far more likely is they could have gotten that because they actually did have someone who was observing her, and they have all these extensive files on her, and they just picked the most esoteric thing they possibly could to be as proof that they knew it. Those are the two hard parts. You get those across, all the rest of it just fits into place naturally. A little cosmetic surgery, that's a joke. One guy who's like, oh yeah, I recognize you. 
that's nothing. That guy could be completely uh, unaware of the significance of his invasion. He could just be like, hey, here's some latinum. Go say this to her. Okay. And then, of course, the altered files, that's a joke. Um, probably the only other thing... <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. The only other difficulty would be abducting her from, you know, Bejor and getting her to Cardassia, with no one noticing, except for the fact that she vanished. Except we know how good Bajoran and Starfleet security are, so... Anyways. <clears throat> Towards the beginning of the episode, Kira is very anti-holodeck. I'm going to talk about that very briefly before we continue talking about the episode proper, because I love that idea. Some people disagree with me on this, but a discussion I've had in real life is that if holodecks were real, there would be people who wouldn't like them. Now, you might be like, hang on, how could you have that discussion involving real life? Well, because it's the same concept as many other concepts. Uh, organic food is really all I need to say about that, but I do have a more practical application of that. The idea of unified... Uh, construction, standardization. I've, I've done a whole lore week talking about the concept of standardization. The idea if that five companies all produce the same engine, there would still be variances. There would still be preferences. Some people would say, well, I prefer this engine because such and such, because it's more natural or because it's more expensive or because it's cheaper. People have preferences. Sometimes those are designed with good intent and significant purpose behind them, and sometimes they just kind of are. That's just nature, which brings me to the holodeck thing. I love the idea that there are people who do not prefer using holodecks, despite the fact that, aside from the Enterprise D, holodecks are actually exceptionally safe, extremely awesome, incredibly malleable tools for both entertainment, education, study, science, experimentation, and grillion other things I can't even think about. The holodeck is kind of the ultimate omni-tool, to a degree that's kind of insane when you really think about it. Granted, I do think too many writers treat the holodeck as magic. That you can just program in some variables and it just perfectly emulates things. I don't think it should work that way, but then again, that's the world builder in me thinking. But even the world builder in me sees the value and potential of something like a holodeck. I mean, you realize that with a holodeck, you could literally customize your own interface, right? As in completely customize. To the point where I want such and such to have... You could basically set up a script file or a batch to... I do this with my thumb, and if I do that, I want such and such to happen, right? I mean, you guys have played Skyrim, right? You could set up batch files, and then you just uh, do a uh, type out the code in the, uh, in you know, you hit tilde, and you pull up the command prompt, and you say, run batch X5Z, and then you can have 30 things happen all at the same time, right? It's the same basic process, uh, process and concept, except taken to the nth degree. Now... An addendum to that, of course, obviously some people are just not going to prefer that. It's something I've actually talked about before about Deep Space Nine. Some people just don't prefer holog uh, not hologram, uh, replicated food. Now, I am firm in my belief that replicated food does not taste significantly different than real food. Now, obviously it has to taste different, because simply the act of cooking it is always going to be varied. So thus, if you cook the same dish 30 times, it will taste 30 different ways, right? I mean, that's just logic. But my point being, I've always fought against the idea that replicated food is actively and demonstrably worse. It is simply different, and thus preference becomes the name of the game rather than superior product. 
Same general concept with this. And of course, Kira is then, you know, anything I could do on the holodeck, I could do here in real life, and it's much better in real life. Now, that's actually interesting in its own right, too, to continue this topic a little bit. Because to me, that means that Kira doesn't really enjoy fantasy. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but it's fully understandable. I know people in real life who don't enjoy fantasy. And I don't just mean fantasizing. I mean fantastical elements, you know, mages or psionics or warp drives or whatever, right? Aliens. I know people who don't get into that, and there's nothing wrong with that. They still have things that interest them, and they just go out and do them, right? Like, you get the concept here. You get the process. So, to me, I see this woman who prefers more basic things. Basic's the wrong word. More real things. Let's just call it what it is. More realistic or actually real things. And thus, given her preferences, only really wants to do those in real life rather than a holodeck. And I kind of like that. It adds some nice little flavor to her character. Which, again, is something DS9 is very good at. So where's Gamar? Anyways. The approach to, to Kira <laughs> is actually quite brilliant in its own right. Why would we hurt you? You're one of us. It's another part of the magic trick. It's trying to draw your attention to specific points. Um, trying to build their argument their uh, on actual logical points. If the Obsidian Order wanted to interrogate Kira, then they would. And they'd probably succeed, and it'd probably be really, really horrible. If the Obsidian Order wanted to, you know, go to all this trouble in order to convince her she's an agent in order to, like, use her as a double agent, they have other methods of accomplishing that, too, which are far less kind as well. We know reprogramming is a thing. We've seen it in TNG with the Romulans, and you can't tell me the Cardassians can't do the same stuff. So, why bother with all this? And at every point in time, Entek is tolerant, understanding, patient. He's constantly trying to push his agenda but does so in a very, like, almost passive way. In other words, rather than, to use a physical analogy, rather than shoving the point, he just maintains a consistent pressure here. Now, a consistent pressure, for those of you not aware, is far more difficult to resist than a sudden pressure. Even if the sudden pressure is much stronger, you are more capable, physically, mentally, emotionally, of dealing with that, whether it is a physical, emotional, or mental pressure. Because, But consistent? Think of it like a well, I shouldn't say that. Think of it like a rock in your shoe. I've used that analogy before. It's there, and presume for a moment you can't do anything about it, because the analogy isn't perfect. But you're walking along, and this walk might be the best walk ever, but that tiny little bit of added pressure, which just isn't going away, just gets worse and worse and worse. And your ability to deal with it, your ability to push back against that, just degrades over time. Then you add in the final one-two punch, which is Gamor. And Gamor is... I, I know this sounds horrible, but Gamor is very human. He's very natural. He's very emotive. He comes across as someone who is legitimate and genuine. Which is important because Entek does not. Entek's... At no point in time Ent, does Entek sound like a genuine person. He sounds like an operative. And he does this consistently. Gamor, by contrast absolutely sounds like a genuine person. And there is, it's, it's almost too overt, the difference in the acting style between the two guest stars. And by the way, credit to both, although I really like the guy who plays Gamora. And of course, the second punch of the one-two punch, why would I put all this... He says, 
He hits her with the logic bomb. Why would I do all this just to get to you? He gives her the memory. He shows her the corpse. And then he walks away from it. Just bam, bam, bam. And we see how much this affects her. Her face. Credit to uh, Nana Visitor, by the way. She has a form of claustrophobia and had to deal with that with basically this on her face. And I have a very minor form of claustrophobia myself. And I have to admit, that would probably get to me after hours of shooting and trying to act. I always have a great deal of respect for actors who can act with a bunch of Play-Doh on their faces. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Quite the contrary. But I know how hot and unpleasant and itchy and tiring and difficult it is to wear these cosmetics and prosthetics and still act. So huge props. Anywho. So her face. She looks so lost, so shocked, so uncertain, so... You can just see this. She's not moving, but you can see the swirl of emotions. And go, and the camera angle's perfect. We just got this nice close-in on her. We got Entek. Entek is ordered away. Gamora comes in. Are you okay? And then she goes over to the mirror, smashes the mirror, and just freaks out and finally just breaks down, sobbing. And Gamora, holding what he believes to be his daughter in his lap, just, you could just see the grief and regret and guilt on his face. I'm a, I'm a selfish old man. I am so sorry. We need to get you out of here. That moment, that's the one that hits me. That was so powerful and so masterfully acted and so brilliantly <laughs> uh, blocked and presented and recorded and directed and everything. I will get you out of here. You do that for me? Absolutely. I love that. I This is another reason I wanted Gamora and Kira to have more interactions in the future, because I legitimately believe a real bond was formed between Kira and Gamora over the course of this episode. And, I mean, we kind of see that when he comes back. It's just, you know, would have been nice for having stuff in the interim. See, the thing is, the only thing that matters, I've said this so many times, the only thing that matters in planning a operation, whether it's uh, criminal, or security, or infiltration, or hacking, or defense, or layout, or military, or economic. It doesn't matter. All plans really boil down to the same base core principle. What's it worth to you? All that matters is the significance of the value of the goal. Because the greater the value of that goal, the farther you're willing to go. Speaking of someone who's worked as a white hat for a brief period of my life, uh, back when I was a network engineer, Brief, for those of you who don't know what I mean, that's just someone who helps defend against security invasions. It's really minor stuff. But one of the biggest things I learned about, I was very low tiered. <laughs> I'm not trying to brag. Sorry, I just realized. Not trying to brag. I was an idiot. Moving on. One of the biggest things I learned was that there is no such thing as absolutely secure. Defenses exist to keep out the innocent. And that's a pretty accepted common trend of everything about human society. But the, the, the other layer of that is what I just mentioned. Like, we, we can throw up all these defenses and all these prevention measures, and they will keep out people who are innocent and might commit crimes and maybe commit crimes and even definitely commit crimes as long as those people are low tier, as long as the goal thereafter is not worth it. But if someone had sufficient motive, whatever that motive is, to break into our servers, they would. All that would matter is if they had that motivation and access to the resources and skills. That's it. Thus, we have the parallel here. Central Command. Th this is a legate, which is 
basically one of the top tiers. And I don't actually remember the complete command structure right now, but this is someone who is a member of Central Command. He is top tier. And he thinks Cardassia could use more artists. That line gave it away right there. He... He is, they don't say this outright, but I always got the impression that he was one of the biggest linchpins of the dissident movement. A movement we've actually heard about before, um, in Profit and Loss, I believe, with, oh, I can't remember her name, at Love, Cardassian Love Interest, who was actually a really cool character, I just can't remember her name, and Quark. Funnily enough, Garrick was in that episode, too. I'll t- discuss that later. Don't worry, I'm not forgetting Garrick. Anyways. So, we've heard about the dissident movement before. We know that there is opposition to the totalitarian regime, and we have semi-recently gotten an insight into why that is. Tribunal. Tribunal probably did the best job of showcasing how messed up the Cardassian Union is on a day-to-day basis, uh, whereas Duet showed how messed up the Union is on a more long-term basis. And between these two things, of course there's going to be dissidents. But a legate of Central Command being involved? More than anything else, that emphasizes just how far the dissident movement has gone. Keep that in mind, okay? Also, again, I feel like he is one of the linchpins of this order. And if they reveal a member of Central Command being a member of the dissidents, that is a huge victory for the Obsidian Order. Like, ridiculously huge. They will get so much more leeway and, and granted access to everything that they currently don't have as a consequence of this. This is playing for the biggest stakes. This is basically the Obsidian Order making a power play to take over the Cardassian Union. Hence, the goal, and all that thing I mentioned earlier, is very high tier. They are very motivated, and thus willing to go to the extensive operations they do in this episode to accomplish this. Now, having said that, I I have one quick note before I switch over to talk about uh, to talk about Garak. I already mentioned the wonderful scene. I have a note here that I forgot to mention. I love the fact that this very human, very emotional connection happens between a Cardassian legate of the Central Command and Kira Norris. There's a wonderful poetry to that. It's not like she isn't aware that there are good Cardassians. She has known this already, encountered this already. But to have this deep and personal of an emotional connection, that's awesome in its own right. And in fact, will probably lead to, most likely leads to certain things in the future with a certain young Cardassian woman in the future, which, that's just theory, but I'd like to think that this is part of the stepping stones in that particular progress. Now, let's talk about Garak. So, Garak's like, hey, the Obsidian Order took Kira. Just letting you know. Then he goes out of his way to say, oh, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going with you. Of course not. And then they're like, they extort him into it, and he's like, okay, fine, I'm being forced into it. However, I will do nothing to help you out. If anything goes wrong, oh, excuse me, God attack. Ugh. If anything goes wrong, you're on your own. I'm pretty sure most of all of that is actually a damned lie and a very Garak way of doing things. The only question is why, for me. Now, first of all, what do you guys think? How much of what he says do you think is truthful and not? Obviously, he is aware of Kira's situation. I have a theory of connecting threads here. Garak is smart. Duh. Garak is connected. Duh. Garak is very pragmatic 
and a tremendous loyalist. All of these facts have already been established as of now in Season 3, and will be reinforced in the future. And when I say loyalist, I don't mean to the Order, or to the Union, but to Cardassians. He is what is usually referred to as a true patriot, someone who really does believe in his people, not just a flag. So, the last time this came up, he shot a Cardassian with the other gun. Not his, he didn't have a second gun. <laughs> Everyone pointed that out to me. He shot a Cardassian and, and killed him in order to help the dissident movement because of love of Cardassia. Remember that? I think the reason he found out about Kira is he's been keeping tabs on Gamora. And when he found out about her and the connecting information, that led him to backtrack to find out that Kira was there and missing. So he thinks about this. Now here's my theory. As ever, I would love to hear your guys' theory as why Garak does all the things he does in this episode. But let's look at the facts real quick before I get to my theory. He tells them overtly, hey, Major Kira's missing. You know, I've got information on her. Then he is like, oh, I'm not going to help you, and allows them in a very smooth and, frankly, uh, simplistic way to push him into helping. And then, you know, again, insists, I'm not going to help you at all, making sure he's making as much of a fuss as publicly as possible. Then they get there, and he talks their way through the two Galors, quickly, efficiently, and brutally. Then they get to the planet. He helps them get out of here. He has a few uh, back and forth between Entek and shoots Entek to death. Then he gets them out. Now, what's the benefit of all of these actions? Well, funnily enough, I think Garrick is playing all sides here, both pragmatically and because of love of Cardassia. Let's look at this for a second. If he goes along with this and things go particularly badly, he helps the Order. And in so helping the Order, you know, betrays his friends and all that, and, and it leads to Garrick, you know, being in better standing and being able to walk out of this. Now, I don't think that was his plan in any sense of the word. I think that was backup, backup plan. You know, the worst case scenario plan. So we got that. But the more likely plan that was intended is exactly what happens. He helps one of the most major members of the dissident movements, who obviously doesn't think of him very fondly, but cannot deny the fact that Garak just saved his life and Kira's and, you know, dealt with the whole Obsidian Order situation, thus. Oh, also saved the dissident movement itself thanks to his actions. He is now in good, or at least in better, with the dissidents. For the second time, I remind you, because he also did this back in Profit and Loss. Also, he just went way out of his way in order to try and ensure that he could rescue Major Kira, someone who is a very beloved figure of the Bajoran people. Like it or not, she's become a little bit of a hero status amongst the Bajorans. And he, a Cardassian, a tailor, just tried to help her, basically at his own risk. And that's another thing that's going to be publicly acknowledged and will enable him to, as Sisko said, be in good standing with the people back in the Bajoran government. And... The Starfleet personnel, the clique, if you will, on Deep Space Nine, has now seen exactly what Garrick is capable of. And that may sound like a negative, but one of the most useful traits when you're playing at games like this is to let your audience, uh, your enemies, allies, let the other players on the board, let's say that as neutral as we can, become aware of at least some of what you're capable of. Because uh, enemies, friends, allies, doesn't matter. What matters is how you control the pieces moving 
And if you control the information they're aware of, you can more clearly predict their response to you. So he goes along with this, orders everyone, orders the Galors down, shoots Entek, gets them out of there. Oh, he had the information to begin with, too. I think this is all very precisely calculated by Garak in order to ensure that he could come out of this with the best situation available. And I think that is very Garak. But the real question isn't that. It, that, that. That's motive, sure. And of course, if you'll notice, going back to my earlier trend, his motive, his goal, is pretty high tier. This, he's, he's playing to win here. So, getting in good with the Bajoran government, with Starfleet, and with the dissident movement, yeah. But I like to think there is one small additional why in all of this. I think Garak, for all of his position, for all of his experience, to some extent or another, legitimately believes in Cardassia, and as a consequence, is anti-union, is against the Cardassian Union, and as a consequence, the Obsidian Order. I think he really does want the dissident movement to succeed. Now, this is not canon, but Star Trek Online uh, plays this idea out with him becoming part of the civilian government that takes over in the wake of all of the consequences of, of the show Deep Space Nine. But as another aside, well, I don't want to talk about it now. Let's just say that I do think that there is a shred of decency in Garak. Probably not what we would usually call heroism or goodness. I like to use a different word. Respect. I think Garrick does have a very strong sense of respect, and as a consequence of respect, loyalty. I have not much else to add. This was a great episode. Uh, really enjoyable going back through it. I hope you've enjoyed, and I will see you next time.